0: one was on gospel comfort from Isaiah 54 my favorite passage sermon 2 gospel transformation was on the prayer of Mary Mary is one of my favorite people in scripture sermon 3 was on gospel strength from Philippians 2 it is my favorite hymn of Christ and today's sermon 4 gospel family is on my favorite analogy family and to explain why family is my favorite analogy and what it is an analogy for, I'm going to take you on a little bit of an autobiographical journey. And on this journey, we'll arrive at my fascination with church history, and then we will briefly conclude with Ephesians 5. Now, this is not the normal sermon structure for anyone at RBC, but it is my last one. So I figure if there are any complaints, Dave DeVries will have to straighten you guys out, and you're probably just grumpy Lakers fans anyway. So through this journey, we're going to look at a few questions. What can family represent? And more specifically, what can a gospel family represent? And how can we be a gospel family? In 2011, I started going to church again. Yep, that's right, again, meaning I quit going for a while. West Side Baptist Church in Mableton, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, and that's right on the west side. It was the most diverse church that I have ever attended or visited. I do not know which people group made up the majority. It was pretty much equally Hispanic, African American, and white. At this church, I had a lot of godly mentors. The senior pastor, who was also a professor at a local seminary, he introduced me to theologians like R.C. Sprouls. The associate pastor of outreach, although he did not even have a theological degree, he was very instrumental in helping me overcome many of my numerous vices, but not all of those. Of course, I had to save some for my wife to help me work out. And of course, there was my Sunday school teacher who taught the men's class. He spent many of his free time, much of his free time helping teach me the Bible. But there was someone at this church that influenced me more than these other three, and he was just a regular dude. Well, that's putting it nicely. When I first saw him, I thought he was weird. He was skinny, to the point of being sickly. He was the kind of guy that made you think, well, if he sneezes, he's going to fall apart. And he always looked like he was about to sneeze. He was about my age, but he wore clothes like my grandfather. Not exactly the guy that got picked at the church, uh, church picnic uh, for the kickball team, if you know what I mean. One Sunday, in the men's Sunday school class, though, we were talking about something I have no idea what it was, And this guy raises his hand to contribute to the conversation, and he quoted two passages of scripture. One passage was from the Song of Solomon, and the other was from the book of Nahum. At the time, I was impressed. Both of these are obscure books. This summer, I hope to finish my thesis for my third theology degree, and I still cannot quote a verse from the book of Nahum. After that class, I asked this guy if he wanted to study the Bible with me, and he agreed. We then began meeting once a week week to read the book of Isaiah, which has my favorite passage of scripture. This man taught me how to read the Bible. We developed a friendship, and one day he asked me a question that still rattles around in my brain today. One day he said to me, what do you know about the Trinity? Not exactly a question I was expecting, and then he asked it another way. How would you explain the Trinity to someone if they asked you to explain it? I had never thought that anyone would ever ask me how to explain the Trinity. It seemed like one of those impractical, churchy questions. But I responded with what I had learned in children's church. I confidently said that the Trinity is like an egg. There is a shell, yolk, and a white, but just one egg. He said with equal confidence, wrong. That analogy doesn't work. It means that God is comprised of parts. The shell, the white, and the yolk are parts of an egg, but they are not an egg by themselves. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are not one-third God that make up God once they come together like Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Nope, So, so much for the egg analogy. Then I said with much less confidence, well, I've also heard that the Trinity is like H2O. There is ice liquid, and gas, but it's all just H2O. As you can imagine, he was just waiting for that one, and he hit me with another, wrong. That analogy doesn't work either. It's closer to a heresy called modalism than Christianity. It implies that the Father, Son, and Spirit just change their appearances or modes of existence and that they are not really who they are. But God really exists in three persons, so the H2O analogy does not Hold water either. Well, why did he bring this question up? I asked him, what's the point? Then he proceeded to explain to me one of the most complicated texts I've ever encountered an unpublished essay on the Trinity by Jonathan Edwards. It's only about 10 pages long. Some scholars describe it as dense theology, and all other des- scholars describe it as very dense theology. It is dense and unrefined because it is unpublished. But it captivated me. How would I explain the Trinity if someone asked? Six months after this, I found myself taking an online theology class, and someone did ask. I had to write one of my first theological papers explaining, quote, my personal view of the ontology of the Trinity. Not only did I not have a personal view of the Trinity's ontology, I didn't even know what the word ontology meant. As I sat there on my sofa, half praying and half trying to think back to my high school days and how I wrote all those book reports without actually reading the book, I got a phone call, but not from anybody at my new church, but someone that I knew 10 years earlier, my first boss. I was picking up the phone thinking he was going to ask me if I still had my shovel and my work gloves, but he didn't. He said that he felt in that moment that God had inspired him to give me a phone call. And come to find out, my former boss had a hobby that we never discussed, theology. He helped me think through the essay question and recommended some more resources for my study. I even ended up getting a pass on that paper. My professor's only negative comment was, are you sure you understand what the word ontology means? (laughs) Again, my thoughts were captured by the doctrine of God and specifically Trinitarian language, How would I explain the Trinity if anyone asked me? Now, fast forward about two years to 2013. I was living in Hong Kong at the time, and I felt inspired to go to Thailand. Perhaps like my former boss felt inspired to pick up the phone and give me a call. In 2014, I moved to Thailand on a student visa. I felt called to go to Thailand as I was praying for the country of Thailand and looking at a map and there was a point on the map I knew I was supposed to move to. No idea how to get there, but I found a university crazy enough to enroll me in a class and give me a visa. So I moved to Thailand on a student visa. I lived in the international floor of a Thai college dormitory. Have any of you ever lived in the college dormitory of a Southeast Asian university? It is not as luxurious as it sounds, but it is as interesting as it sounds. Almost every country from Southeast Asia was represented. Not only ASEAN countries, there were people from Iran. There were Nepalese and Indians, Sudanese and Chinese, South Africans, Nigerians, and many more. My next door neighbors were Cambodians, and they were Buddhist. Their neighbors were Pakistani and Muslim. Their neighbors were Hindus from Bangladesh. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, People that consider them both Hindus and Buddhists, which is actually not that small of a number, um, and me. Frequently, I would have dinners with these different groups of people, or combinations of these different groups. Have you ever eaten Bangladeshi curry made in the Thai dormitory that does not have a kitchen? Have you ever eaten Pakistani barbecued chicken cooked in a Thai dormitory that, you guessed it, does not have a kitchen? I've either added five years to my life by enhancing my intestinal fortitude or I have shaved about five years off. My favorite part about these meals and particularly the evening tea time with these guys, which the tea time was much less harsh on my stomach, were the conversations. Most of them were PhD students from the School of Pharmacy or the School of Agriculture. All of them were smart, hardworking, my friends, and not a one of them Christian. When we discussed our various religions, they did not ask for my theology of crafts and children's ministry. And sorry to break it to you, Baptists, none of them asked me for my theological advice about how much water is needed for a valid baptism. However, almost all of them asked me to explain the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Thank God for my unusual friend at church, and thank God for my first boss. Over the years of study and many complicated and sometimes heated conversations, I have come to realize that the technical language of the Trinity is simple, yet infinitely profound. As theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, theology is so profound that it can only be approached in humility. Like approaching God himself through the gospel, we need humility. The simplicity and profundity of the Trinity is what the ancient church called the medicine for the soul, the true philosophy, or the true way of life. The doctrine of the Trinity simply states, God is one being, one usia. He has one nature, God is one. And God exists in three concrete persons, or three hypostases. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can also say that he is God, Word, and Breath. Unbegotten, begotten, inspirated. First, second, and third persons. But these numbers are not in order of importance like Olympic medals. They are simply logical orderings. Because all three persons are perfectly and equally God. One being three persons. That is the doctrine. But it is just the beginning. The fun doesn't really start until we start using analogies to explain the doctrine. Analogies help open our closed minds and our closed imaginations to the infinite reality of God, the triune God. Yes, the doctrine is important and must be approached in humility. But the imagination must be attacked with excitement and passion. Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, and many other great writers all knew this, and they were all grounded in the ancient church. My interest in the ancient church really comes from two things. First, my search to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, just in general, but also in a missional and ecclesial contexts. Secondly, my interest in church history comes from trying to find analogies to communicate the Trinity that also speak to the heart. Three men from the fourth century have particularly captivated me. They are known as the Cappadocian Fathers, two brothers and a friend. The brothers are Basil and Gregory of Nyssa. Nyssa is the guy that I write my papers on these days. And their friend, just to make it confusing, is also a Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus. And Nazianzus is the Gregory that I named my son after. Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. All three men ardently defended the technical language of the Trinity. But they also liberally used analogies to captivate people's imaginations in hopes of uniting people's minds to God. At our home, we have a saying of one of these fathers that says, think of God more than you breathe. Think of God more than you breathe. How is that possible? Well, we must capture the imagination. One of my favorite analogies comes from Nyssa, as he relates the Trinity to our body. Nyssa begins by imagining or asking us to imagine God the Father. God is eternal, all-powerful all-knowing, all-present, and all of his divine attributes, including love. On top of this, the Father speaks. But his word is not like our word, which are words, which are weak and dissipate quickly. No, his words resound without any dissipation. His word is concrete. His word is eternal, all-powerful. All-knowing, all-present, and contains all of the divine attributes because of the source. Thus, the word is eternal and equal to the Father. The word is one with the Father. The Father also breathes, but not like our breath. When we breathe, the air dissipates. When we speak, a breath of air accompanies our words, but both of them vanish as quickly as we speak and breathe them. When the Father speaks the word, There is also a breath, not a weak, fading breath, but once again a resounding and concrete breath. This breath is also eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all of the divine attributes, including pure love. Thus, the breath or the spirit is eternal and equal to the Father. Both word and spirit begin in the Father, and both are connected to the Father. The Word and the Spirit are one with the Father, and this is an analogy for the Trinity. Another Cappadocian analogy relates the Trinity to three candles. The first candle representing God the Father with all of his divinity in fullness, and that candle comes and lights a second candle, the same flame but two concrete realities. All the divinity from the first is in the second And if these two candles come together and light a third, all three candles are full divinity. Yet they are not separate, but they are one, representing the triune God. Another Cappadocian analogy uses a similar idea with fire, but instead of candles, it relates the Trinity to the S-U-N sun. Picture a sun, S-U-N, more powerful than any star in the universe, more brilliant than all the stars of the universe put together. Then picture that sun beginning a second sun just like the first candle. And this second sun is just as brilliant, just as powerful, and just as hot as the first because it possesses all of the divine attributes of the first. Then those two suns come together producing a third sun. All three suns Eternal, infinite, all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, and yes, pure love. However, there is not enough space for all three of these sons to be independent sons. They must overlap. They must be one. All of these analogies are powerful. They shape our imaginations. Why did the Cappadocians write like this? Because they wanted you to remember God more than you breathe. In fact, every time you release a breath, they want you to think of the Spirit of God. And every time you utter a word, they want you to remember the Word of God. Every sunrise, every sunset, everything in between, and even the stars shining at night, and even candles or your nightlight, they want you to think about God. But these are not my favorite analogies for the Trinity, My favorite analogy for the Trinity is from Gregory of Nazianzus, the one that I named my son after. The analogy does not use a flame from a candle and not even the sun, but something more radiant, something in creation that is greater than the sun. Human beings, people made in the image of God. In fact, Nazianzus refers to the first family in the garden, Think of Adam, when he was created, complete in his humanity, with nothing lacking. And in a sense, he was unbegotten. First, in logical order, not order of importance, corresponding to the Father, the unbegotten, the first person of the Trinity. And from his side, he begets the second person, completely equal in nature, with nothing lacking in her humanity. The perfectly sharing in it. Eve, complete in humanity with no deficiency. The only ontological difference is that she is second in logical order, not order of importance. She corresponds to the Word, the begotten, and in perfect unity with the first. They are not one flesh, they are, excuse me, they are one flesh, they are one in humanity and their child. Seth, according to Nazianzus, proceeds from the first through the second to be the third, the one that proceeds, perfectly equal in humanity, three individual persons, and one united family. Now imagine with me, what if Adam did not have a human nature, but a divine nature, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, infinite, and pure love? then the second person who is begotten from the side would also be completely eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, infinite, and pure love. In the same way, the third person would also be completely divine. As with the three infinite sons, there would be no space for the three infinite eternals to be independent. They would be overlapping, perfectly united coming from the first person as one being. There was no time when they were not together. There was no time when they were not fully equal or one in being. The first family, an analogy into the Trinity, grounded in the 4th century Trinitarian debates and fodder for plenty of discussions in international tied dormitories. The Trinity speaks to a complex problem That all people must answer. It is perhaps the most complex philosophical problem throughout all of history, and the problem for our own culture at this time. The problem of unity and diversity. How can anything truly be united if things are diverse? Or, stated another way, how can things be truly diverse if they are united? How can things be truly united if things are diverse? This is the problem for Hindus, for polytheists, and for atheists. How can things be truly diverse if they are united? This is the problem for Muslims, non-Trinitarian monotheists, and materialists. We can only be truly united if there is a triune God, and we can only be truly diverse if there is a triune God. Family. Unity and diversity. The Trinity is not a family. The Trinity is beyond family. But the Trinity is the foundation for family. And the Trinity is the foundation for all life. The family is not only an arena for us to work out our salvation, but it is also to be an icon, an image of God and his gospel. God is love. The gospel is God's love and action. And family can be a window into that love, a window into heaven, a window into God himself. Perhaps you're thinking, well, maybe your family, but not mine. My family is messed up. Well, have you ever met Adam and Eve's family? They produced the opposite of love, death, brother killing brother, fratricide. For a family of life, we must not look only to the old Adam But we must also look to the new Adam, the better Adam, the true human being, Jesus Christ. In gospel imagery, it is what Paul calls our head. And we must not only rely on our old families, but primarily on the new family, the gospel family, the church, and not just our local gathering, but what Paul calls the body of Christ Christ. How do we live as the gospel family, whether as individual families, a local church, or the entire church? How do we live as images of the triune God? How do we live as testaments to the love of God, whether it be as individuals, as a local church, or the entire church? How do we live so that we can be windows into heaven for the world? How do we shine with the radiance of the gospel, whether as individuals, a local church, or the entire church? Ephesians 5 and 6 tell us three things. Submission, love, and obedience. This passage does not simply tell us who's supposed to be submitting to whom, who's supposed to love who, and who is supposed to obey whom. Although the passage does say a lot about that. Ephesians 5.21 introduces this section and tells us that all of us need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We cannot submit, we cannot love, and we cannot obey within the gospel family, whether it's individual families, a local church, or the entire church, until we understand the submission, love, and obedience of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ as the new Adam, not the Adam in the Garden of Eden who is rebelling against God the Father, but the new Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane who was submitting to God the Father. Not speaking the eternal words of creation, let there be, but speaking words of eternal submission, like his mother Mary's, let it be. Jesus prays in the garden, not my will, but let your will be done. In this prayer, Jesus resigned his natural and human will that desires to live and escape death. He did not resign it prematurely, but he resigned it so that the divine will could be perfectly manifest in a human being. Pure holiness, pure virtue in the flesh, Pure humility in our nature. Pure submission, whose cheeks did not refuse the betrayer's kiss. Pure submission, whose ears did not refuse the crowd's insults. Pure submission, whose face did not refuse the spit and fists of the temple soldiers. Pure submission, who did not refuse his back to whips and rods. Pure obedience, whose head did not refuse the crown of thorns. Pure obedience, whose shoulder did not refuse the cross. Pure love, whose hands and feet did not refuse the nails. Pure love, whose side did not refuse the spear. From, Adam's, from the old Adam's side came his bride, But from the new Adam's side came the new bride, the church. You are the body of Christ. The ones to whom he has given the commands, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. But he's also given you another command, to love one another as he has loved you. The command to love is the command to carry a cross, to inhabit the gospel of humility and exaltation. First, humility, submission, and obedience. But then, transformation, exaltation, and glory. Does the gospel really change everything? Yes. Not because of us who are chosen to preach, and not because of us who are families and church families who are called to live it, but because of the power of the gospel. The gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the humiliation of Christ that helps us make sense of the world around us. Please give all of us the ability to follow in Christ's humility. We need your grace for that. And Lord, we long for the day to experience his exaltation, where we are seated with him and we can receive our own crowns and throw them at his feet. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.